Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I am your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 6, April 26th to May 1st, 1861. Last week, we talked about Winfield Scott and the Anaconda Plan, Virginia, Arkansas, and even just a little bit of money briefly. Thank you all for bearing with me with that money talk because I have never really been strong in economics, so I apologize if that was a little painful there, but we got through it. So today I want to talk about Maryland and backtrack just a little bit there, as well as talk about army organization. I also wanted to shoehorn an introduction to one of the most important figures of the war, and we will talk a little bit about spies during the Civil War as well. So, But before we do all of that, let's talk a little about habeas corpus. On April 27, 1861, Lincoln will withdraw habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a writ that requires an arrested person to be brought before a judge to determine if the imprisonment is lawful. Habeas corpus actually originates from England, where subjects wish to be protected from the crown by the judicial system and see if their imprisonment was seen as unjust. So King can't just say, I don't like those pants or goodness even their religious views, let's throw them in jail. Uh, that, that can't happen. During the revolution, several governors suspended the writ. In the Constitution, we talked about back in episode one, there was added a suspension to the clause. In times of extraordinary circumstance, say rebellion, habeas corpus can be suspended for public safety reasons. This will be the first time a suspension is used, and only one of four times in U.S. history. It will be the only time that the executive branch will suspend without approval of Congress, though. This is important because, remember, at the outbreak of the war, Washington, D.C. is effectively a southern city. It's surrounded by Maryland, which is, in fact, a slave state. Right across the river is Virginia, who just seceded from the Union as well. Winfield Scott was concerned that secessionists from Virginia or Maryland will infiltrate the inauguration and make an attempt on the life of the president. Considering it would be easy to do so, being so close, and Maryland being volatile, as we will see soon, it would be important to quickly arrest suspected dissidents and enemy agents. Politicians from several border states would be subject to this as well, and not just the common people. Unfortunately, this was also a way to silence any anti-war protesters. The Confederate government would also adopt a suspension of habeas corpus, but arrests were on a smaller scale than those of the North. 
Let's talk a bit about Alan Pinkerton. Pinkerton was born near Glasgow, Scotland, in 1819 and immigrated to Chicago in 1842. He conducted surveillance on a group of counterfeiters, helping lead to their arrest, which would start his detective career. He would become Chicago's first police detective, as well as work for the U.S. Post Office. In 1850, he would open a private investigation agency. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency had the motto, We Never Sleep, with a logo that displayed an unblinking eye. Hence, the term private eye came into use. Pinkerton would hire the first female detective in 1856. Having immigrated to the United States due to being a chartist, which is part of a reform movement in Scotland, Pinkerton was no stranger to radical politics. He was a stout abolitionist and would offer his service for the Northern cause. Actually, he had aided our old friend John Brown by donating money to purchase supplies for his Liberation Army that we talked about back in Episode 3. The Pinkerton Agency was hired by the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad because of the concern that Southern sympathizers would damage the tracks. While working on this case, Pinkerton stumbled on a potential plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln while he traveled to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. Lincoln stopped many places on his way and advertised the route. The assassination plot was that a Corsican barber named Cipriano Ferrandini would attack Abraham Lincoln as he traveled by carriage from one rail station to another in Baltimore, because at that time the tracks did not connect, so they needed to switch trains so that they could go on their way to Washington, D.C. During his investigation, Pinkerton had actually found out that there were many people in Baltimore who were, of course, Southern sympathizers. Surprising. Pinkerton and the son of William Seward would convince Lincoln the threat was real and create alternative arrangements to protect the president. His role in the affair may have been exaggerated, but it does not negate the fact that Pinkerton did set up a way in which Abraham Lincoln got to Washington safely. Cipriano was accused, but never indicted, which I think is telling toward maybe the exaggeration piece of things. In fact, although a Southern sympathizer, he would not be arrested for his beliefs at all, even with that suspension of habeas corpus we talked about. During the war, Pinkerton would serve as Chief of Intelligence for George B. McClellan, which he gets mixed reviews because McClellan gets sent um, some exaggerated claims of how large Robert E. Lee's force is, so uh, Pinkerton is criticized a little bit for that. After the war, the Pinkerton agency would go after train robbers, among other criminals. During the 1870s, they would attempt to apprehend the famous outlaw Jesse James, but the search was called off after a failed raid that ended with the killing of Jesse's eight-year-old half-brother. 
the Pinkerton agency would be involved in security and get the reputation as being the strong arm for big business in the late 1800s. Alan Pinkerton would die in 1884, but his agency would live on. Their practices would influence other agencies, such as the FBI. We can add just a quick note about spies in the Civil War. Pinkerton was part of the intelligence network of George B. McClellan, as we mentioned, and this was because there was no centralized military intelligence in the Union. Generals were responsible for their own. In the Confederate States of America, there would be covert operations set up by the Secret Service Bureau. The Bureau operated on the secret line between Washington and Richmond, as well as sending messages to agents abroad, so like in uh, England or Canada or whatnot. Rose O'Neill Greenhow was a prominent Confederate spy early in the war. Conveniently, she was a socialite from Washington who passed on information to our friend P.G.T. Beauregard prior to the First Battle of Manassas. Pinkerton would actually place Greenhow under surveillance and that would actually result in her arrest. Belle Boyd was another famous Confederate spy, starting at only 17 years of age. She collected intelligence that would aid Thomas Jackson in the Valley Campaign of 1862. She would be arrested multiple times and imprisoned twice during the war. We mentioned earlier that many were imprisoned for Southern sympathies in the capital. Many would be placed into custody by Lafayette C. Baker, who would work with the eventual Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Another famous Union spy was Elizabeth Van Lew. Although a member of the Richmond elite, she became a strong abolitionist. Interestingly, she would become a nurse at the infamous Libby Prison and aid soldiers there. I do want to do Civil War prisons as an extra topic at a later date, but suffice for now to know that the conditions in Libby Prison were not great. Van Lew would pass messages in secret. She would become important to the intelligence efforts involving the Confederate capital in the later stages of the war by setting up a spy network. Another interesting spy was Sarah Emma Edmondson. She actually enlisted under an alias in the 2nd Michigan Infantry. There is no real proof of her spying exploits, but her memoirs do detail her disguising as a slave and as an Irish peddler to obtain intelligence in Confederate camps. She actually served as a courier in multiple battles in 1862 as well. We have already mentioned a couple of times now just how potentially dangerous Maryland was as a border state. Obviously, if there was a planned assassination of Lincoln, that's sort of case in point. Baltimore Mayor George W. Brown would message Lincoln that no troops would pass through the city, lest they rile up the populace. Today, Baltimore is a great city. That is, unless you wear a Cincinnati Bengals jersey to a Ravens game. I can tell you from first-hand experience that you hear some pretty 
interesting things thrown your way verbally. But also, from first-hand experience, that's just been it. You just hear things. When Union troops first rolled through, they were met with mobs that would hurl rocks at them. And I gotta say that I would be less likely to attend a Ravens game if there were being rocks thrown at me, regardless of how many touchdowns I've seen A.J. Green score at M&T Bank Stadium. But I digress. On April 19th, an event that I have held until this week, the 6th Massachusetts Infantry, having answered Lincoln's call, would pass through the city on their way to Washington. Much like the president, the troops would have to switch trains in order to accomplish this. And it should be noted that Lincoln is very anxiously waiting the arrival of these volunteer troops because there's not a whole lot of men that are standing around to defend the Capitol and that need to uh, have protection, especially with Virginia leaving the Union, is, is sort of amplified. Already having the citizenry riled up from Lincoln's change of plans did not help any. In fact, there were several cartoons depicting Lincoln uh, disguising himself that were very critical, critical of the president. Mobs soon formed and threw stones and scattered gunfire onto the Massachusetts men. Eventually, the soldiers had taken enough abuse and began to fire back into the crowds. Eventually, the police would arrive to form a barrier between the citizens and the soldiers, but the damage was done. Four soldiers were dead and another 36 wounded. Eleven rioters were killed with many more wounded. As terrible as this event was, it was a small taste of the violence yet to come. Some people actually refer to this as the first battle of the war, but it is not so for me. I do not really conclude that that is the case, Uh, but, you know, certainly one of the first instances of violence. And also, fun fact, uh, the song that is still the state song of Maryland, uh, Maryland My Maryland, was written uh, shortly after this event. And if you did not know, I bet it would surprise you that Maryland My Maryland contains uh, several interesting lyrics, including talking about uh, the uh, despot's heel, uh, which is referring to Lincoln, and Northern Scum, which is referring to the Sixth Massachusetts. So uh, that is still the state song today, uh, written after this event. So, fun fact. A general assembly would be called in Frederick, Maryland on the 26th. Frederick was chosen due to its pro-Union sentiments and lack of hostility like, say, Baltimore. Preservation of neutrality was important for the delegates who attended. A bill that would allow for secession from the Union failed, the delegates citing that they did not have the authority to do so. In a sort of on-the-fence scenario, though they did not like that the occupation of the state by federal troops nor did they approve of federal troops passing through their state on their way to fight against the South. Pro-Confederate members of the Assembly would be arrested later in the year. Like many border states, regiments from Maryland would serve on both sides during the war. On April 28, 1861, 
Thomas Jackson takes command of Confederate volunteers at Harper's Ferry. Jackson would actually organize the shipping of materials to Richmond we mentioned in an earlier episode. In the coming weeks, he will train the volunteers, preparing them for war. Now, is this event really crucial? Well, not really, but I'm using it as an excuse to introduce someone who will impact our story. Although Thomas Jackson was a colonel at this point, he would rise to the rank of general and be a sort of right-hand man for Robert E. Lee in the Eastern Theater. Jackson was born in 1824 in what is now West Virginia. He led a tough life early, his father dying of typhoid. Thomas was sent to live with his uncle, and he would graduate from West Point in 1846, 17th in his class. He serves in the Mexican-American War as an artillery officer, rising to the rank of major before resigning his commission. Jackson would then become an instructor at Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. He was known as Tom Fool due to his strange practices such as sucking lemons. Tom Fool was a devout Christian, believing heavily in predestination. Whatever happened was destined to happen, in other words. In 1855, Jackson had begun teaching Sunday school to slaves in Lexington. The son of one of those students would dedicate a window to him in the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in Roanoke. I'm not really a betting man, but I would say that possibly could be the only such window dedicated to a Confederate officer. Finally, let's talk a little bit about Army organization. If you do not know the terms regiment or brigade that I've been using, I would like to take some time just to explain. Also, it could be good if we're on the same page moving forward. Let's start with a company. This would be the base unit that volunteers would be formed into. On paper, a company was formed of 100 men. But in reality, the company could be formed of far fewer men. Ten companies would form a regiment. Again, on paper, probably up to 1,000, but in reality, you're looking at more 300 to 400. A regiment would be commanded by a colonel or lieutenant colonel. Generally, you would have three or four regiments in a brigade. A brigade is commanded by a brigadier general, so that makes sense. Brigadier, brigade, makes sense there. Several brigades would form a division. A division is commanded by a major general. Important to keep in mind that as the war goes on, ranks would be jumbled a bit. So you might have a colonel commanding a brigade or even a division. Around three or four divisions would make up a corps. Usually, a lieutenant general commands a corps. The corps would then form an army. Both sides would feel several armies, which were named after the relative area of operation. For instance, in the east, the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia would face off against the Union Army of the Potomac. The Army of the Potomac would come up with symbols for the various corps in their army. The badges, such as a circle or a cross or an acorn, would be different colors to denote the division. In the Confederate Army, brigades, divisions, and corps 
would be known by their commander. So you might have Jackson's Corps or Longstreet's Corps, for instance. During the Civil War, we see a development of three distinct branches. Infantry, whose organization we just talked about, cavalry, and artillery. Classically, we see infantry, designated by a bugle, cavalry with crossed sabers, and artillery with crossed cannon. Cavalry, that is to say, mounted soldiers, will be grouped in a relatively the same way that we talked about with infantry. Artillery, or cannon, would be a bit different. Two pieces of artillery would form a section. In the south, a battery is usually four pieces of artillery. In the north, usually six pieces made up a battery. Captain would command a battery on both sides usually, and a lieutenant is commanding the sections. Confederates would group batteries into battalions, while the Union would group batteries into brigades. Early in the war, batteries would be attached to infantry units, but in order to be more effective, they would be held in reserve and applied as necessary by a commanding officer. So that way, you know, your, your commanding officer of the army can shift artillery where they need to go. We talked a little about officers commanding, say, regiments and brigades, well, let's talk a little bit further down the line. Private was the base rank, followed by NCOs, or non-commissioned officers. That is to say, soldiers who have been promoted through the ranks, as opposed to attending a military academy or being commissioned. Chevrons on the arm would designate an NCO. Union officers would have shoulder boards to designate their rank. If you've ever seen a picture of an officer in the war, the tabs you might see on their shoulders, that's what we're talking about here. And they might have bars or oak leaves uh, to, or stars to designate the rank there. Confederates would have their rank designated on their collar, so a little bit different than the shoulder boards. Just as a quick note, we have been using the term volunteer regiments. In terms of the North, there were regular U.S. Army regiments that participate as well as volunteers. Obviously, in the South, we just have volunteer regiments. They didn't have regular Army units. Lincoln wanted more volunteers. Winfield Scott wanted more regular Army regiments. From what we know about Scott, this makes sense. He was a stickler for Army organization and wanted a strong, standing, professional Army in America. Volunteer regiments would be known by a number and the state of origin. For instance, we talked about the 6th Massachusetts, the 6th Regiment from Massachusetts. And it is important to note that with these particular regiments and companies even, they're coming from uh, a community, so they're community-based. So you might have different towns forming companies and they're coming together you know, into a regiment. So. That's going to play a factor when we talk about the motivations for soldiers, why they fight, why they join up. You know, this, this very strong sense of community is going to be a big factor. And early in the war, they're going to elect their officers. So folks who are having a stronger standing in the community, 
they're going to be the ones who are going to be leading these men. So uh, that's also going to play a factor down the line as well. So uh, with these volunteer regiments, that was what we're talking about. All right, I think that would be a good place to pause for now. We got to talk about habeas corpus, Alan Pinkerton, and spies during the Civil War. Maryland staying in the Union is important, and their struggle is similar to other border states who do not secede that we will take a look at. We introduced the man who will come to be known as Stonewall Jackson and talked a little bit about Army organization. Next week, we will talk a little bit about Great Britain and France, so the European involvement in the war, and introduce some cabinet members from both North and South. If you like what you hear, please be sure to leave a review. Once again, your feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com, so any questions, comments, concerns, and we do have in the episode description a link to the Patreon, the website, as well as a Venmo information in there as well. So uh, your support for the show is greatly appreciated. So thank you and have a great week.